This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Nice to be with you. It's kind of a cozy Wednesday. Just a few of us here with all the things going on. Nice to be with all of you. Uh, most of you know me. My name's Kodo. Let me know if it gets a little too soft and I'll, what do you think? Yeah, it's a little soft. I think we can adjust the volume. Well, I'll speak more loudly for the moment and then we'll see what happens with the volume. Um, so this is our first event post Sashin. Um, I feel, uh, I feel a lot of joy every time I think about Rohatsu Sashin every year. It was sort of a ritual for me to do it year after year, um, to celebrate the awakening of the Buddha and to spend seven days in silence and stillness with, with community. And um, okay, thank you. This year, the timing was such that I was actually away uh, during Rohatsu, all of you were, or those of you here in the room, many of you here were um, spending the week in Zazen. And I was uh, up the road a little bit in Marin uh, for the week as a, as a trainee on a retreat. And the topic of that retreat is the topic I want to talk about tonight. It's sort of the Dharma I've been swimming in, and it's, it's really on my heart. The, the retreat was, uh, was entitled Befriending Mortality, Awakening to Life Through Contemplating Death. Awakening to Life Through Contemplating Death. And the, I would say one of the, one of the main takeaways, and the thing I really want to talk about tonight is the way in which an intimacy with and a regular reflection upon our our death, like our our mortality, this truth of life and death. Um, it's like it clarifies something for us, arouses something for us. And um, for me, for others, can make priorities very, very clear. So the team I was there with was um was just a, a delight. Uh, it was um, Nikki Mergafori, who's something of a specialist in, in that field, and her Dharma sister named Beth. And then uh, a 40-year Theravada monastic named Saida Ujagara. And I had a, I had a, a lot of fun, actually, with them. It, it sounds like a pretty heavy topic, but I was like, I was all smiles for a lot of this retreat. And part of that had to do with the, the qualities of this group of people, I think we're well suited for the topic. And what I noticed was this combination of heart wisdom, heart wisdom, um, humility, and humor. Yeah, humility and humor. So one of the primary pointers about uh, a practice that that is close to reflecting on our mortality is 
to maintain a bright mind. There's that uh, Lojong slogan, always maintain only a joyful mind. I think it's maybe along the same lines. Um, and I think it's, it's easy to sense how um, meditation on death or reflection on mortality can easily have our minds sink. So starting from a place that's supported and bright and wide and open and well-resourced, and then into that field, introducing this reflection, it's an important place to start. So we started with this pointer toward the bright mind, and then also this pointer toward embodiment, toward embodiment, um, in much the same way that our, our mornings and evenings in Zazen, our lived embodiment supports us and kind of softens us, makes us supple and open. I often think about how the a difficult truth can enter us much more effectively if we have a soft, open, awake heart. So the support of embodiment, the support of the bright mind, and then the third is the support of Sangha. So um, just a few words about why this topic was especially appealing to me or relevant to me in that, in a, in a phrase is the fact that in my own life, mortality stays pretty close a lot of the time. Uh, all of you in residence and probably many of you by now uh, who, are, who are online know that um, I practice with a chronic illness. And what that means is my body requires a very small dose of insulin every day in order to live. And if I don't have it, I'm always like one vial of insulin away from the hospital. Um, I'm well supplied. I wouldn't worry about me too much. Um, but there is something about having, having that uh, consideration, always keep mortality close. And then in particular, there's a, there's a, there's a moment this, where this was really driven home for me, the, the sort of fine line that I walk. And it, it was a moment uh, when I was, I was living at Tassahara and um, I didn't have any honey with me. Honey is like diabetic medicine. And bring the bring the sugar back up. Um, my friend and I went for a walk, uh, and I was listening to him. He was having kind of a hard time, and I didn't want to interrupt him. But we started going up a hill. Start walking up this hill. My blood sugar starts dropping, and I don't realize until it's too late that I'm too far. I've gone too far, and I can't make it back. Um, I'm starting to get the internal like red flashing light, like oh no, something. Something is something is really amiss here. I'm looking at my meter and I'm like, um, okay, I could lose consciousness at any point now. So I, I communicate what's going on to him and make the decision. Like how how do how do you burn the least amount of sugar possible? I sat down and I decided to do zazen on the hill while he bolts down the hill to run run back to Tassahara Valley to try to try to get some help. So I'm sitting there and it's evening and I'm, I'm doing Zazen. And um, the moment I realize I'm really in trouble, I look, I look over to my left and the moon is up. The moon's rising and I look over at it and I see two, I see two moons. And I think, oh, this is it. This is it for me. I'm, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose consciousness and then I'll pass away. 
um, I'm sitting zazen and sort of just being with that realization. I'm not really doing anything, but it's a very strange thing to like have that slow approach that's fast enough to know, like to know of oh, death is coming, but it's not here yet. And then this question came up in my mind. It's like, am I complete? Am I satisfied? Is, is everything okay? Could I, could I go now and that'd be fine? And an answer came, which was, oh, I really wish that I got to ordain as a priest. But everything else was good. Everything else was done. And something about re receiving that answer has stayed with me. Um, yeah, so about, about that time, I see the, the blue compost truck uh, driving down the trail below. And some of my friends barrel out of the, the back of the truck, and I hear one of them crash through the bushes in Tassajara Creek. And then uh, some minutes later, I see the six and a half foot man with a top knot and a, the jar of honey just like running with all of his might up the mountain. And he hands it off like um, as like the important thing that it was and gave me some honey and I made it. He saved my life. So I, I share all this as the, uh, yeah, just to just to show how our mortality stays close. Our mortality stays close, and so the the topic of this retreat was was uh, relevant and up for me. So this resource of our embodiment, this sort of like wide, broad holding of a difficult truth like mortality as well as the support of Sangha. It's my experience that we need a lot of support in order to look death squarely in the eyes, to look eye to eye at death. Um, and I believe that it's worth noting that we're very well supported to think about anything but. Um, I believe Nikki was quoting Sam Harris when she was talking about this idea of like, consider all of the activities that we do during the day that only make sense in light of eternity. They only make sense in terms of assuming that we live forever. Like uh, watching, a, watching a bad rerun for the fifth or sixth or seventh time or like bickering with a friend or a partner or something things that really only make sense in light of thinking we have a long time to live. And on the other side of this, I think of uh, a verse from the Dhammapada, that many do not realize that we here must die, but those who realize this, quarrels end. We stop fighting. But we're really well supported to not think about it. And I, I can speak for myself and say like the things that the things that tend to concern my mind is sheer net amount of time are things like media, money, work, conflicts, grudges, you know, the everyday suffering, everyday sufferings of our daily life. So we're well supported to really not consider it all that much. There's another aspect to this, which is um, which is something uh, in a recent article in the London Review of Books called the 
the death trades, how um, much of what happens to our bodies after we pass is hidden from us. Or the, pe the people who are intimate with our bodies after, after we pass and what those processes, we don't see them. So I'm, I, I've been thinking a lot recently about how one doorway into intimacy with our mortality is to actually get closer to understanding what those processes are that happen after we die. But I'll just sort of leave that for your own consideration. It may well be for good reason that we deny or like don't pay attention to our mortality so often. Like it's not easy. It's really not easy. I find that even, even though it's been close to me, often I forget. Just like, oh, living my life, doing my normal thing. Um, but I think, again, community can help us. So one of the first aha moments that happened on this retreat uh, happened when we were setting up some small groups. And uh, it was introduced in this way where um, it was introduced by telling the story of Kisa Gotami and the mustard seed. I think a lot of us know, a lot of us know the story of Kisa Gotami and the mustard seed. Yeah. In short, um, a, a mother is grieving the death of her child and car carrying it around with her, and she's, she's lost. I mean, it's a really difficult story. Um, I don't think the, the grief of a parent who's lost a child can be overstated. Um, and in her confusion, at some point, someone points her toward the Buddha, and she comes to the Buddha asking for help. And... Uh, in brief, his response is something like, yes, I can help you. Bring me a mustard seed from a home of someone who's not been touched by death. So filled with hope, she goes to the village, knocking on door to door, first door, knock, knock, knock. Do you have a mustard seed? Yes. Mustard seed. Oh, has anyone here been touched by death? Oh, yes. My mother, my sister, my brother. Second door, same. Third door, same. And slowly she dawns on this, this realization. Again, not to like, not to understate her grief at all, but she just comes to understand this truth. Oh, this is something we all have to reckon with. This truth of mortality and of death. So the, the groups were set up with this, this story and the prompt was given, which was, what's your, what's your current relationship to death? Like, what's your experience? What's your experience related to death? What messages have you received? Where are you at with it, more or less? And as I'm, as I'm sitting up there, I can see a hall full of 100 people. They set up and the bell rings, we start talking. And what strikes me in, in this way that's like body, body to brain was there was no hesitation. One, everyone had a relationship to death. I had my own mustard seed moment, right? Everyone had a relationship to death. And not only that, everyone had a story. Everyone had this narrative of their life and how they, how they relate. So some, that, that really landed with me in some kind of way. Um, I think it's well reflected. And um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who called death the great leveler. I don't know where this phrase comes from, but uh, I, I interpret it as like 
no matter our background, no matter our class, our fame, our power, our wisdom, anything. For all of us, this is the truth of our life. So maybe there was something related to that that was um, maybe like that mom, that aha moment for Dogen Zenji when he sees the incense smoking rising at his mother's funeral and has this has this insight about mortality and impermanence. But this sense of urgency and this sense of clarity arises. So we're well supported to not really see death all that much, but I. I have a sense that Zen attempts to attempts to keep the reality of life and death sort of front front and center for us. It's like right. I mean, we, we see it we see it in here at every morning with the sound of the Han. Great is the matter of birth and death. All is impermanent, quickly passing. Awake, awake, each one. Don't waste this life. And that sound, that board calls us to zazen smack it's almost like a call of that message every time the han hits now is the time to practice we don't know we don't know how long this life is so we have this support and then um something i'll get into a little bit more later is uh, the tradition and the tradition of old of zen masters writing a, a death poem at the end of their life and then, of course, one of the one of the most um, traditional functions of temples, something we still practice here today, is uh, memorials, memorial services, um, where we we make make tea and offer flowers and um, offer that up to Suzuki Roshi every month as a way of connecting with with him. So I have a mentor that um, many years volunteered at the Zen Hospice Project and many years um, did a lot of silent retreat practice. And uh, to my surprise, in a discussion with him, he said he was changed as much by his work in hospice as he was by retreat practice. That both of those were sort of fundamental to the, the person and practitioner he became. And in reflecting on this, there's a, a thinking about the way one cares for a person or accompanies a person in hospice. It's like this full body attention. It's just simple witnessing, being with, and presence in a way that communicates, I'm here. If you need anything, I'm here for you, and I care. It's a lot like our zazen. And I think that practice ripens us in a similar kind of way. Something that's profound, I think, about the practice of reflection on death, meditating on death, is that we, we don't or can't dictate how it will change us or how it will ripen us. Zazen is much the same. Like we, know, we know that a reflection on death can sort of quell the hindrances or um, lead us into concentration or undermine our cravings and our aversions. But that's not a comprehensive picture of what it can do or what it does or how it ripens us or how we grow through it. 
my observation on this retreat was that person after person, it was um, something in them shifted about recognizing what they loved and recognizing what they, what they cared about and how they wanted to live with that. So I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, about six years ago, um, left Tassajara and I had some very good fortune where I sort of landed in a Buddha land in a very literal way. Um, May and I ended up doing some live-in hospice care for a friend in East Bay and uh, a literal Buddha land because in several of the rooms in this house, there were these giant Buddhas, giant Buddhas, like what good fortune. This, um, this friend, her name was Hema. She had this beautiful garden in the back and she was um, she was a, a social worker for 40 years and a, a Montessori teacher. And she was dying of cancer. Um, and over this time we spent with her, developed this like, this very simple, beautiful bond. And something that I respected so much about her was her profound dignity. Just like through, through some, some of the most difficult things that a person can do, I think. Yeah, I'm still struck by her. I wasn't there when she passed. Um, I, uh, I, had, I had gone to a, a two-month retreat and about two weeks in, the teacher calls me into the interview room and says, Koro, we got a call and Hema, Hema has passed. Hema has, Hema has died. And I could see in his eyes that he's like, is Koto okay? Is he gonna be okay? When I heard the news, interestingly, what I felt in that still, still mind, still heart, still embodied, open, broad field, a smile came over my face. I felt relief and I filled with joy for her. It was totally unexpected. It wasn't like it wasn't like an enjoyment of her passing or something. It, it wasn't morbid, but it was the end of her life was so difficult. This is the sense I made of it later. The end of her life was so difficult that I was just so happy for her. And her time was done. Thich Han, of course, has this idea that. Yes, of course we die, this life ends. And in some ways we don't die, we become the rain and we become the sun and we become the soil. You probably remember Suzuki Roshi saying he will become American soil. There's this other image that comes from forests though. And that is, um, you could probably see this in the red the redwood uh, redwood forests that are close by, but um, or maybe like a big old oak in Golden Gate Park or something, where you see a big fallen tree that's died, and then on the top of this fallen tree and all around and inside and under it, all this life is growing out of it. Like over the top of a fallen tree, you've got all these little ferns growing up, the mushrooms coming up with their little dirt on top, and the bugs and the animals all this life that's being supported by what was this tree. And with the passing of this tree comes all of this new life. They call these nurse logs, I learned. 
just makes me think of nursing mothers. Like this is nature. This is, this is natural. This is nature. The passing of this body and it going on to new life. I think of Hema again and her actions as a, as a social worker and as a teacher and her like being, I think of her as a nurse log, like all of this goodness she planted in the world and that grew out of her life and out of, out of her passing. We cared for her, she cared for us, she cared for the world. And in an unexpected twist, when I came back from, when I came back and it was time, Rahatsu uh, Sashin uh, was still going on. And in this room, we had a Buddha's enlightenment ceremony. And there are these um, red lacquer offering towers. And inside those offering towers, there were these white and blue cups. And I think what you don't know is that those were Hamas. And she gave them to me. And then they ended up on the altar. It's like that. Her little act of giving, so simple for her at the end of her life, ended up in what we might consider just like this most meritorious of offering places. So beautiful to me when I saw it. And we're celebrating the Buddha and we're throwing flowers into the air, chanting the Makahanya. And there she was. So Zen keeps our mortality close. So this tradition of death poems. Um, there's some little anecdote about a, a Zen master about to about to pass in the monastery, and uh, someone brings him ink and paper, and I think he quips something like, "Oh yeah, without a poem, I couldn't die." <laughs> uh, but uh, there's this collection of, of these death poems um, in, a, in a book called Japanese Death Poems, the translations. And um, they are so full of just a clear-eyed vision of mortality, the bright mind, wisdom, and awareness, and that sense of urgency. And they're just soaked in truth. Like this one line by Basui Tokushu, I teach with the voice of silence. Or Dokyo Eitan says, um, here in the shadow of death, it is hard to offer the final word. I'll only say then, without saying, nothing more, nothing more. Like really, can we put words on it? Can you, can you circumscribe mortality? It's just too big. Or Giyun who says, in the heart of the fire lies a hidden spring. I'm always encouraged. This is one for Sashin for sure. Or Suzuki Shosan was paraphrased as saying, to know death, that is the entire Buddhist doctrine. And then maybe one of my favorites, this is by Kozan Ichikyo. In 1360, he passed. Translated as saying, empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going. Two simple happenings that got entangled. 
two simple happenings. And then again, hearkening to this is nature, this is natural. Lastly, Daido Ichi, 1370, a tune of non-being, filling the void. Spring sun, snow whiteness, bright clouds, clear wind. Just this. So this way that an intimacy with morality or mortality clarifies priority, generates a sense of urgency. This strikes very close to the Buddha's own story. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm always inspired when I think of the Buddha leaving, leaving the palace and encountering aging person, ill person, dead person, and an ascetic. And this face-to-face -face encounter with death, like something fell away and something really turned on that he needed to find a way to reckon. And that he did. So with the time we have, I wanna mention something about um, a couple of ways of meditation practice um, relative to mindfulness of death. Of course, keeping in mind, keeping in mind this admonition to maintain a bright mind. We have, have that as the broad field. Um, but a way to stay close to mortality is to in, enter into that embodiment of zazen and that like, tuning into the, the right here felt sense of aliveness. Tuning into the breathing body and then dropping in the notion this could be my last breath. And when that's done rippling, this could be my last breath. Sometimes my, my discursive mind has a hard time believing it. This could be my last breath. So uh, a slight shift that I found helpful was my last breath, there will be one. I will have a last breath and it will be like this. There will be an inhale, there will be an exhale, and then there won't. It will be like this. If that all feels a bit like uh, too much doing, then one other way to approach this, before sitting down on your cushion for zazen, or maybe before coming down to the hall, if you're hearing the Han, take a moment to um, reflect on the five daily reflections. I'm of the nature to age. This body's not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to grow sick. This body's not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. This body has not gone beyond death. Everything I love, I cannot help it, I will be separated from. And then I'm born of my actions, heir of my actions, arbiter of my actions. Everything I do, for good or for ill, 
to that I will fall here. The efficacy of action. And just there, I think, is the turn. It's like our, our, our mind is cleansed of the static of all of those concerns with contact with something that's real, aging, illness, death, loss. And then this notion that our actions matter, they ripple out, they have an effect on us and they ripple out beyond. And without all that static, there's just this clarity that arises. Not only clarity, but a sort of, um, it's like it clears away some of, the, some of the hindrances. So something beautiful that's inside us can have its space and light and grow and flower unencumbered. Maybe one of the last things I'll share is one of the exercises of this last week. Um, we wrote our obituary. We were, with a bit of humor, we were, we were guided to pretend that a meteor was about to strike. And uh, we were meant to write our obituary as if we were going to pass in 20 minutes. And I, uh, it was the first time I'd ever done this. certainly inspired some sense of getting my affairs in order, but um, what I took away from it was the observation after I was done, I realized that none of my ambitions and none of my accomplishments made it into my obituary. From the perspective of my own death, it just didn't matter. It really just didn't matter. Rather, my obituary consisted of this long list of people I love and who've loved me. And somehow from the perspective of, oh yes, this is the end of my life, that was really the thing that I cared about. I don't know what it would be for you. Maybe just a final word, which is in this practice of reflecting on death can stir up a lot for us, can stir, stir up quite a lot. Um, knowing that and knowing we're all coming from different places, different life experiences, um, my encouragement would be if you're gonna, if you're gonna take up a practice like this to please take it slow, um, be gentle with yourself, be kind with yourself have the support of friends and teachers. Um, do what you can to maintain a bright mind. And you'll know the practice is, you'll know the practice is working if um, you can see, is mindfulness clear? Is mindfulness here or am I sinking and spinning? And if that's so, you'll pull back. And then on the other side, this little edge of discomfort actually which is the body and the mind realizing that, oh yeah, I am actually going to die. I think if both of those are there, that can be, can be a good indicator.
so I think I think we're in we're in a good place that Zen keeps us close to this to this truth. Um, I hope that's so. I hope that's so, and I hope um, I hope when we forget that we're not long gone, and we can come back and support each other to stay close to what's true, such as or so as to be in touch with most what's most important to us and live from there. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.